This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. It was one year ago today that Russia invaded Ukraine. The United States marked the event with a surprise visit by President Joe Biden to Kiev, during which he promised even greater support from America. Well, Vladimir Putin is passing the one-year anniversary by pledging greater resolve than ever to escalate the war as much as necessary for victory. What has one year of warfare brought and what will happen next? For answers, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, one year ago today, February 24th, 2022, the world changed. In the bitter chill of that morning, Russian artillery and airstrikes began pummeling Ukrainian cities, and Russian tanks and troops, tens and thousands of troops, started pouring across the borders into Ukraine. The plan by Vladimir Putin's Russia, it was to quickly conquer Ukraine, kind of the way it had happened nine years earlier with the Crimean Peninsula. Putin expected little Ukrainian resistance, a rapid surrender from President Volodymyr Zelensky, and just a fast victory for Russia. And really, it wasn't just the Russians who expected it to go that way. Most of us thought that that would be the basic outcome. But here we are, one year later, Zelensky is still in Kiev. The Ukrainians are still fighting, actually with more resolve than ever. And they're also fighting with more and more backing from NATO and other countries. But as you said, the Russians are also more resolved than ever. Uh, but we did have a visit this week to Kiev by the U.S. president. So that's seen on both sides of the war as just a very clear demonstration of American resolve to keep on helping the Ukrainians defend themselves against this military invasion. And then that U.S. visit was followed up by a major speech by NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. In one part of that, he said, quote, Putin must not win. That would show the world that aggression works and that force is rewarded. It would be dangerous for the whole world. So that was sort of the crux of his speech. And then we also have the U.S. government this week directly accuse the Russian government of crimes against humanity. That's not a phrase that uh, America casually bandies about as an accusation against another national government. It's reserved for systematic or widespread attacks on civilian populations using murder, torture, and rape, things of, of that kind. So just, you know, heinous crimes that are orchestrated at the highest levels. And the Russian torture camps that have been found throughout the liberated Ukrainian space showed that this label is certainly justified. So this uh, direct accusation of crimes against humanity is a sign, I think, that America has no intention of probably ever letting Russia back into the, you know, what's been called the family of nations, at least not as long as the current Russian leadership or anything close to it remains in power. So that was uh, just the latest development, I think, showing that we should not expect any diplomatic solution to this war. Now, as far as the war itself goes, there isn't anything really earth-shaking to you know report over the last few months. The battle lines have moved very little, um, really since probably September, October, somewhere around there, even though both sides are losing thousands of men in order to keep those positions. The Russians in particular are suffering just extremely 
extremely high casualty rates. Best estimates say at least 200,000 Russian troops have now been killed, wounded, or missing, and probably closer to 270,000. Wow. So just for perspective, when the Soviet Union tried to conquer Afghanistan for 10 years from 1979 to 89, it lost a total of 15,000 troops. So, uh, you know, the losses for the Ukraine war are in the stratosphere right here. But Russia has a large population and the leadership appears to be basically unfazed by those catastrophic losses. So the battle lines haven't moved much and it's clear on this one year anniversary that this war could still go on for quite a long time. That truly is uh, amazing. It does feel like we're kind of at a point in the in the war where the the fact that this really is turning into a a kind of a proxy war, a, a world war, uh, is is uh, becoming more and more apparent with uh, Joe Biden's visit, uh, his pledge to to have America as committed as they are. The other uh, the other factors that you mentioned. On the Russian side, we're going to talk about this not only in uh, this segment, but later on in the program. Uh, there seems to be more more determination than ever. It doesn't seem like uh, Vladimir Putin has any interest in backing down whatsoever. That's a great point. Yes, he, he really can't afford to lose this. Um, I think that it would require losses over half a million on his part before he would even begin to consider backing down. And right now we're probably only at half of that. Mm. So if the next year of the war goes on the way the, the first year went, perhaps he would back down just, just because of, uh, just because of the sheer numbers of, of losing that many. But until that time, I don't think we should expect any, any soul searching at all on his part. And in the meantime, he's, he's making public proclamations uh, and even policy decisions that show he's he's committed. Yes, he uh, actually delivered his annual State of the Nation speech in Moscow on Tuesday. And uh, he was kind of playing his greatest hits for most of this, blaming the West for everything, uh, just utterly defiant in his blame, you know, blaming the West. Putin has really become kind of a permanent victim in recent years. So it was no surprise, I think, to hear him rehashing all of the old talking points of, uh, you know, Russian propaganda. But then the main event of this speech was Putin saying Russia will break with the New START treaty. That's a nuclear pact that limits Russia and the U.S. to deploying only uh, 1,500 nuclear warheads each. And it requires both countries to allow short notice inspections by the other just to verify that they're in compliance. It is the world's last remaining nuclear control pact. But Putin says that other nuclear powers now want Russia to lose in Ukraine. Powers like France and the UK and the US. So now he's done with it. And there's actually evidence that Russia has already been violating the treaty for a number of years, deploying more warheads than are allowed and refusing inspections. Um, but even still, to have the world's last remaining nuclear control pact ending shows, I think, just how fragile the global peace has become and how easily a nuclear war could break out. And he has been making uh, some pretty bold statements about the the very the likelihood that he will actually use these weapons in the Ukraine war. There have been several statements over the last year uh, in which he threatens to use nuclear weapons. It's kind of an interesting dynamic there because China is 100% against that. And the Chinese have uh, pretty much every time Putin has made that threat, there will be a phone call from Beijing to Moscow. And then we'll hear 
a new statement from Putin. He'll say, look, we're not crazy. We're not going to use nuclear weapons. So I think that were the Chinese not restraining the Russians mm. in that way, we probably would have already seen um, use of nuclear weapons. But Russia doesn't want to lose its only ally. And so they don't want to infuriate Beijing in that way. The fact that uh, that they have those weapons available and the the uh, the longer this goes on, the more um, uh, the fewer options Russia has if they do want to uh, continue to prosecute the war and and to attain ultimate victory. Uh, it does seem like this is definitely something that we can't just cast aside as being a possibility. It's true. Yes, I think that uh, the longer it goes on and the more desperation the Russians feel, uh, the the more likely that outcome gets. Can you just bring us up to speed on how this factors into uh, Bible prophecy? Sure, yes. Uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, he wrote an article a year ago, back in February, just a couple of days after Russia expanded this uh, long-simmering conflict into a full-scale war. Mr. Flurry's article is called Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine. And he wrote in there about how Putin's aggression is something that he's been specifically warning about for about two decades now. One part of his article says, I've been warning for years that Vladimir Putin would be responsible for violent conquests and would set in motion some astonishing and historic events. And then uh, he goes on from there to explain that the reason why he has been warning about Putin is because of Bible prophecy. One of the main ones that he delves into is Ezekiel 38, which is a chapter largely about a figure called the Prince of Rosh. And Mr. Fleury identifies this man as Vladimir Putin. So, you know, this article has a lot of ongoing relevance. It helps us to see that Putin, uh, you know, we shouldn't expect him to be defeated. And he'll soon be waging wars even more destructive than this one. So I would recommend that article to any listener who would like to understand Russia's war in the big picture kind of context. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. The threat from Russia isn't the only nuclear threat the world needs to be concerned about. The latest report from the UN's nuclear watchdog agency says Iran is right on the cusp of weapons-grade uranium enrichment. To learn about this, we'll turn to Mihailo Zekic. Yes. So on February 19th, uh, Bloomberg first broke the story. Other me uh, news mediums caught up. They cited three anonymous diplomats stating that the International Atomic Energy Association, which is, of course, the United Nations watchdog for all things nuclear, um, claiming that they have proof that Iran has reached uranium enrichment at 84% purity. Now, to put this into context, about in 2021, it was at 60% purity. It's now a couple of years later reaching 84% purity. Um, the IAEA has yet to publicly confirm this, and they haven't issued a report uh, about this to to uh, involve part or interested parties, which it normally does. But Iranian state media actually uh, confirmed it. So there's a lot of back and forth. We don't really know what's going on. Why is, say, the uh, Atomic Energy Association not coming out clean with this? Um, why is Iran being public about this? Uh, the big concern with everybody's mind about this is that 90% uh, enrichment is considered weapons grade. Now, as our longtime listeners would know, um, the Biden administration in America has been trying hard to bring back the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Europe has been 
pretty eager to talk about this. A lot of people have been distracted with Ukraine, but there's still pressure to try and get a deal on the table. The fact that Iran is just reaching such high levels of uranium enrichment, while there's still these talks about having a deal going forward, A, it shows how unlikely a new deal is going to happen, or at least one before Iran reaches weapons-grade uranium. And again, who knows how long or how much of a supply they'll have of this. So just because they reach weapons-grade uranium doesn't mean they're going to have an ICBM overnight. But still, there's that. And B, the other fact is Iran's going full steam ahead despite negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when the original deal was signed, there was an attempt by a lot of the media, by some of the governments, to paint Iran as an actor in good faith mm. as uh, we're going to put this all together. And Iran, for their part, says that their your uh, nuclear program is just for peaceful purposes when you're sitting on massive levels of uh, fossil fuels and other traditional energy sources. Uh, you'd have to wonder why they'd be so desperate in making uh, nuclear energy when it's so controversial. No one believes them, of course. But it, it's been open secret that they're using it to make a nuclear bomb. And at this point, it's almost like they're not even trying to hide it anymore. Right. So it's uh, a top of everything else we've talked about. While this story might get swept under the rug with stories of Ukraine and other um, perhaps more ob- uh, blatant and obvious geopolitical te- uh, tension zones, this one is obviously a trend the Trumpet has covered for a long time, and it's one we keep a particularly watchful eye on. And some people might get a little bit tired of us constantly saying, like, oh, Iran's two months away from developing a nuclear bomb, et cetera, and nothing happens. When you're at 84% purity, once you, mm-hmm. it, uh, all you need is that next 6%, and that's it. It's no longer a trend we'll be watching. It'll be something that is fulfilled. And you look at countries like North Korea, uh, who also helps Iran out with its nuclear program quite a bit. Once these countries, they get a nuclear bomb, even if they get the strictest sanctions in the world, even if they're saber-rattering from enemies on all sides, they're not going to give them up. Mm -hmm. So all this talk about Iran getting a nuclear bomb, um, uh, Iran increasing its enrichment, once it reaches that 90% threshold, which is closer than ever, which is blatantly closer than ever, that's it. We're almost at that level. We have a short article about this by Rufaro Manyepa called Iran Now Has Near Weapons Grade Uranium. And one fact that he gives in this article that I found particularly eye-popping, three years ago, Iran's uranium was at 4.5% enrichment. So in the last three years, it's gone from 4.5% to 84%, uh, 84% so, so close to that 90% threshold of uh, being weapons grade. Uh, It's not going to take very much longer. It just so happens that we just sent the revised version of the King of the South booklet by our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, to the printer last week. It should be up on thetrumpet.com today. Uh, And he has quite a bit of information in there about uh, just the dangers that Iran poses when we look at the role that it plays in biblical prophecy, end-time prophecy leading to a nuclear World War III. He's been warning for years about the dangers posed by nuclear weaponry in the hands of this extreme radical Islamist power. 
Well, yes, as as you said, this is a trend we've been watching for years and years. Uh, part of the reason is, uh, or rather the main reason, is a prophecy in Daniel 11 we go to often. Uh, Daniel 11 verse 40 talks about a king of the south and a king of the north butting heads. And Mr. Fleury has pointed to the king of the north being Europe and the king of the south being Iran. And he's pointed to that uh, confrontation as being one of the one of the sparks that gets everything spiraling into a nuclear World War Three. Those other other prophecies and other events that factor into that as well. But it's really this push from the King of the South that causes all this. And I mean, when you think about Iranian ideology, we've talked about this on the program before too. It's it's in in some sense it's even more more dangerous in North Korea because. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about radical Islam, uh, th- that ideology transcends any rational statehood desires of like security or interest or whatnot. This is about a worldwide revolution, and as far as the mullahs are concerned, a nuclear revolution. Um, Mr. Fleury has written another booklet called Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door, which talks a little bit about the Iranian uh, nuclear uh, a vision for the world and what nuclear weapons mean. This is a fanatical regime that, if it ever gets nuclear weapons, and as I just discussed, is closer than ever to getting, the, or at least the material for a nuclear weapon, we could start seeing the dominoes for so many other biblical prophecies, so many very chaotic, violent biblical prophecies to happen. So if any listeners would want to learn a little bit more about this and why we watch Iran's nuclear program, and specifically, I'd recommend they go read that booklet. Nuclear Armageddon is at the door. All right, very good. Thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. All these activities by Iran and by Russia as well have Europe deeply concerned. For the first time, both of these nations were excluded from this year's Munich Security Conference. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, I think this is a fascinating and understated trend that's been going on over the last 12 months or so where there's been a definite increase in opposition between iran and europe i think we've talked about touched on this a number of times on this show i think you've you kind of have this dynamic where iran is the biggest opponent to the united states there's a growing hostility to the united states within europe uh, and so Europe has kind of think, well, thought, well, why not sell Iran technology and kind of benefit from the Iran deal? Uh, Iran is kind of focused on hating and bringing down the United States. Doesn't really damage us too much. So let's keep doing business with them. And so we've seen Europe kind of pushing for the Iran deal and, and, and making a lot of money doing some of this business. But really, in the last 12 months or so, we've seen that kind of evaporate as Europe and Iran are increasingly at loggerheads. And so the latest sign of this came um, on February 21st, where Iran sentenced an Iranian German national to death on charges of corruption. And this is kind of a long running um, back and forth between the two. Iran arrested this individual in August 2020, claiming that he was involved in a 2008 attack on a mosque and um, you know, the family deny this and talk about him being kind of kidnapped by Iranian intelligence in Dubai, carried off into Iran. Understandably, Germany is not particularly keen on having German nationals put to death by a foreign country. They've mm. been protesting this very um, vigorously. And so for Iran to completely ignore Germany's protests, 
and go ahead and sentence this individual to death. You know, we don't care about this relationship anymore. We don't care about um, we don't care about any uh, any hope of uh, rapprochement or anything like that. We are going out of our way to offend you. And so then we saw Europe kind of respond in kind where um, Germany's foreign minister is talking about stronger sanctions. I'm sure we'll see more kind of along these lines, but uh, certainly an, an escalation in the uh, in the relationship between these two. Which is interesting in light of uh, this storyline that we've been tracking now for uh, for probably a, a few weeks, if not a couple of months, of this kind of uh, tension increasing between Germany in particular, Europe more broadly, and, and Iran. Uh, maybe put it in, in context of what else we have seen between these two. Right. So we've seen an uptick in terrorist attacks in Europe and, and kind of a steady, you know, nothing... Nothing mass casualty, I guess, but there's been a steady drip of Islamist attacks, not all of them tracing back to Iran, but uh, Iran's support for just a whole wide gamut of Islamic terror is is well known. And then you've had Europe do things like place sanctions on Iranian individuals. We saw more sanctions just this week as kind of part of the response to this killing um, or this, this sentencing. Sorry, the individual's not been killed yet. But... Um, we saw this with the European Parliament vote to put the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, on the list of terrorist groups. And Europe as a whole, the European Union stepped back from that, but still put sanctions on them, which, I mean, you think back to when President Trump de designated the IRGC a, uh, a terrorist organization, and he was denounced as extreme and unskilled in foreign policy, and it was some kind of you know, far right America first type of type of thing. And now you've got the European Parliament, probably the furthest group possible from America first, uh, standing up to Iran on the same level. So uh, it's uh, certainly some some changes from both sides. Talk about uh, how this factors into Bible prophecy. Yes, it's a perfect place to plug our new improved King of the South book, um, that you've heard a bit about from Simon, where you know, we've had we've long forecast this clash between Europe and Iran. That the Bible talks about this King of the South pushing at the uh, at the King of the North, and these, as we show in our booklet, is referring to a radical Islamist movement led by Iran pushing at a European power. It used to be, like I said, that, that Germany and Europe were pretty tolerant of Iran. Now we're seeing exactly the dynamic that is forecast in that booklet, the first version of which was, was written years and years ago. And so it's, uh, it, we're watching the early stages of that prophecy be fulfilled right now. So that booklet tells you more. We also have an article, Europe and Iran on course for a clash of civilizations. That's up on our website right now that you can read uh, to get an overview of this. Yes, that new King of the South booklet is up online as of today. Go check that out. It's quite a significant upgrade of this classic booklet by our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry. Uh, I really encourage you to, uh, to give it a read. Even if you have read it before, it is definitely worth studying again. Thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. It's been three weeks since a train derailment spewed chemicals all over East Palestine, Ohio. The government's response to help residents has been anemic until Donald Trump decided to make a visit this week. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. 
Yeah, the train derailment in uh, East Palestine is probably the biggest environmental disaster in U.S. history. I think the fish death count alone is already above 3,500, uh, not to count uh, sheep and goats and cows and foxes and whatever other animals. So it's probably the death count for the animal community is probably already above what it was in the Deepwater Horizon explosion in 2010, which is commonly cited as the previous biggest environmental disaster. Yet the U.S. government hasn't shown much interest in helping this community uh, until just recently. Uh, obviously, the standard National Transportation Safety Board officials showed up after the disaster to do some environmental remediation, uh, but FEMA hasn't sent any aid to the people or didn't send any aid for two weeks. Uh, and uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg uh, didn't show up <laughs> for three weeks. He finally just got there yesterday, uh, and many uh, conservatives think he would have never come at all if it were not for the fact that Donald Trump showed up the day before. Uh, about the middle of this week, Trump showed up with uh, 13 pallets full of clean water, and uh, he uh, he really got out there, uh, talked with the people, saw their concerns, uh, uh, bought all the uh, the remediation crews, took them out to lunch to McDonald's, which is arguably more toxic than the vinyl chloride, but, uh, <laughs> but it's the thought that counts. Uh, uh, and uh, and the water was actually probably his most important. Uh, gesture. That's one thing. FEMA hasn't sent. <laughs> FEMA has finally sent some aid after being shamed by Republicans. Uh, but from everything I've seen, they have not sent water because the government's talking point is the water's safe to drink. And so, if you say the water's safe to drink and then send them some clean water, uh, you're undermining. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're undermining your own position. So by bringing those 13 crates of water. Uh, Trump is definitely <laughs> letting the community know that the water is probably not safe to drink. Uh, if he was president, I'd be doing something to help you. And since I'm not president, I'm actually going to spend my own money uh, to do for you what the government's not going uh, to do. Uh, so the people were pretty impressed with that. I saw some rallies with the, uh, <laughs> the very relatable chant, Joe's got to go. Uh, so it's this is going to be a, a big... Um, a big plus for Trump kicking off his campaign season. Uh, Buttigieg got there the next day. Um, yeah, he was <laughs> uh, definitely not uh, the best performance. He he got up there and started talking about how Republicans were spreading misinformation. Uh, but then when pressed on, like, well, what misinformation, he, he paused and stuttered and said, like, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought, which is the most unfortunate choice of phrase when you're talking <laughs> about <laughs> a train disasters. I guess it's not the only train you lost, but it's... Uh, uh, so uh, this is all happening. The, the, the footage of Donald Trump helping the residents of East Palestine are, are superimposed over images of uh, Joe Biden in Kiev pledging more money for Ukrainians. Uh, it's the contrast between these two could not be more stark. Yeah, well, when uh, President Trump definitely twisted that knife where uh, a lot of the people up there are feeling neglected. Uh, so he brought them water 
uh, and he said he's going to make sure he keeps uh, keeps them supplied with water for some time going, uh, and then uh, expressed his optimism that he's like, well, hopefully uh, Joe Biden will have some aid for you uh, as well uh, if uh, if he has any money left over after he gets back from Ukraine. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So definitely pointing the. Uh, <laughs> trying to highlight the fact that um, the Biden administration is bending over backwards to get the Ukrainians whatever they need. Um, and then, for the most part, completely ignoring this crisis in Ohio. Like I said, it's I think Biden has probably tried to defend his record, saying that there were government officials there the day after the disaster. Um, but those officials were the standard uh, transportation department officials that go anytime there's a environmental crisis like this. They were not uh, FEMA officials there to give food and aid to the people. As a matter of fact, FEMA, the governor of Ohio requested aid, and FEMA initially said, oh, this isn't a traditional disaster. It's the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history, but it's not, according to FEMA, it wasn't a traditional disaster. So FEMA refused aid for two weeks until the political pressure grew to such a point that they um, eventually gave in. So I I don't know what, what all takeaways you, you, uh, you've taken from this, but I, I can't help but look at this in light of what Gerald Flurry has been saying about the um, eventuality of Donald Trump returning to power. And it's just remarkable how you see this sequence of events that uh, seem to be positioning Donald Trump to be the most most formidable political force within the country that would un uh, unseat uh, Democrats' uh, bid to try to uh, uh, hold on to the presidency. Right, and I think that is the biggest prophetic takeaway uh, from the visits that happened this week that's uh, in addition to what we talked about on this program last week. Because last week I did give a rundown of what happened in East Palestine, Ohio, uh, talked about how the government was ignoring it uh, and even talked about how the um, just the hypocrisy of how the government's responded to this legitimate environmental disaster versus how they respond to uh, all the fake environmental disasters like carbon emissions or car cow flatulence or whatever it is they, they talk about mm -hmm. um, isn't just uh, <laughs> the result of... Uh, like a naive or incompetent mind, but an actual deliberate display of force against conservatives. Uh, Donald Trump really highlighted that during his visit. Uh, but when you see the chance of the let's go Joe and the, the people, uh, people throughout the Midwest uh, realizing that Trump's looking out for their interest in Biden isn't, that could be very prophetically significant in bringing that second uh, Kings 14 uh, verses 26 through 28 prophecy and the Amos 7 verses 8 prophecy about um, an end time Jeroboam figure leading a temporary revival in the end time nations of Israel. Uh, actually, if you, if you look at the, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we know when you just look at electoral politics that the Democrats pretty much always take the coastal cities and the Republicans <laughs> take what you call flyover country or the interior of the, the country. Um, that dynamic changed a little bit when um, Biden uh, stole the election in 2020 because uh, he, he did way better than uh, expected in Pennsylvania and uh, and some of these Midwest countries. And so um, having a crisis like this, it's particularly in the American Midwest, uh, where Trump can go in and uh, present himself as someone who's actually looking out for the 
uh, health and well-being of uh, <laughs> of people in those midwestern states uh, that is very uh, strategic uh, for uh, and I'm, I'm not and I'm not just accusing President Trump of completely playing politics. I'm sure he's giving <laughs> this water because sure. he is legitimately concerned that these people are drinking vinyl chloride. But if, if uh, especially these states in particular, if they're voting for him, uh, if the if the margin of victory can exceed the margin of rigging in the Midwestern states, then Trump will do very well uh, mm. uh, if they're if things progress to another election in the United States. Probably the best resource if you're interested in more information about how this factors into prophecy is Gerald Flory's recent article, Ready for War. That was our cover story from a couple issues back of the Trumpet magazine. Go check that out. Anything else that you would direct people to? Yeah, no, I, I think that probably is the, the, the best uh, resource covering the spirit of what's happening here. Um, we also have our editor-in-chief's book, uh, America Under Attack, which gives even more information than that Ready for War. Uh, and um, our executive editor's last trumpet brief from Mr. Stephen Flurry about clean up or cover up that was written before Trump uh, went to Ohio, but really gives a lot of specific background as to the the Biden administration's cover up in uh, uh, at the disaster site. All right. Thank you, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, we'll learn which country might be coming to Russia's aid to help it win in Ukraine, who the new most popular politician in Germany is, which country is stabbing America in the back by moving away from trading in dollars, and how China looks to be intentionally poisoning Americans. We'll be right back. Trumpet Hour, the week in review. We'll begin the second half by returning to Ukraine. Russia has struggled with Ukrainian resistance far more than it expected, and it's faced a number of setbacks in its war. But major help could be coming from a formidable ally. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said that U.S. intelligence has proof that China is planning to send lethal aid to Russia to help Russia take over Ukraine. So American authorities did decide to go public with this, uh, mainly as a pressure tactic, just hoping to convince the Chinese not to follow through on this plan. And we also know that NATO officials have taken this warning very seriously. They've been actively working to kind of dissuade China from following through on this plan, but China has very little regard for the, you know, opinions and sermonizing and repudiations of, of other nations. So those kinds of uh, NATO and American efforts ring very hollow in Beijing. So we don't yet know the specific items that, uh, that Russia might receive from China, but it is well known that China has become really a world leader in making the main kinds of armaments that have been used in Russia's war. Uh, precision, multiple rocket launchers, loitering munitions, long-range artillery systems, anti-tank missiles, surface-to-surface -surface missiles, all of that sort of thing China excels in. 
And it's also clear that Russia has been actually suffering serious shortages of many of those kinds of things. So if China does provide this kind of lethal aid, it'll be throwing just a major lifeline to Vladimir Putin's forces. And something like that could bring a quick end to the kind of stalemate that we spoke about in the first half. It could quickly turn things in Russia's favor. China has been uh, supporting Russia in many other ways uh, up to this point. Uh, it's talking about bringing lethal aid. What has it been contributing to Russia's effort to this point? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, we don't yet know for sure whether China will follow through on this plan for, for lethal aid. But we do know that China has already done a great deal over the last 365 days to keep Russia afloat and to keep its war machine slaughtering in Ukraine. Uh, there has been Chinese energy purchases from Russia, in many cases significant increases over previous years of uh, gas and oil. And of course this comes as Western nations are trying to wean themselves off of Russian energy just to punish Russia for the war and to try to bring an end to it. So China's ongoing energy purchases from Russia have just alleviated a great deal of what would have been economic pressure on the Russians. There's also diplomatic backing. In several UN votes over the last year, the Chinese have had Russia's back, either voting against condemnations of the war or at the very least abstaining from such votes. So that might seem a little bit irrelevant with an institution as broken as the UN, but it does help Russia to broadcast its message to third world nations. You know, in Africa and Latin America, it, it prevents Russia from looking like a pariah, and it helps Russia kind of present China's support as evidence that Russia's in the right with this war. Um, and then China has also kept on joining Russia for war games since the war began. And then most significantly is that China has sent tens of thousands of shipments to Russia of dual-use items. So these are components that can be used in fighter jets and in navigation technology and jamming equipment. So these are items that the West has banned any country from sending to Russia just in an effort to, to kind of starve the manufacturing side of the Russian war machine. But China has been sending tens of thousands of shipments of these kinds of things, and that has been an invaluable lifeline to Russia. So, you know, if, if, if China does follow through on the plan, to send lethal aid, that'll be a major development, but it will also just be following a well-established pattern that has been in place for the entirety of, of the last year. This really is one of the most significant outcomes of the Ukraine war to this point, this uh, this uniting of Russia and China. There are some people who say that, you know, the fact that what the West has done and NATO's uh, aid to Ukraine is driving these two countries closer together, is bringing the, the entire world closer to the brink of World War III. And it's interesting, looking at this in light of Bible prophecy, the alliance between those two is a major development that we expect in the end time. That's a great point, yes. And, and it's caught some onlookers kind of off guard to see China providing Russia with so much aid, just because if China were to be sanctioned the way Russia has been, its economy would just rapidly implode. Uh, so because of that, it has really surprised a lot of people to see China still helping, even at that risk. But the Trumpet and our forerunner publication, The Plain Truth, we've not been surprised by it at all. We've actually been warning for over 60 years that Russo-Chinese cooperation would increasingly occur. Um, and that is because of Bible prophecy. Trumpet editor-in-chief Daryl Fleury wrote about several of the specific prophecies that talk about this in his recent article. It's called Asia Still Stands with Putin. 
In that article, he examines Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 9 and some other uh, Bible chapters. Those are all about a massive alliance of Asian countries in the modern day that are led by Russia. So this article, you know, it covers a lot of ground and it shows that we should not expect China to break with Russia over this war or anything else. We should actually expect the two to work together even more closely in the months and years ahead. Asia still stands with Putin is the name of that article we'll link to in the show notes. We also have a short article on this development of China possibly providing Russia with lethal aid. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. Now to Germany again, where the new defense minister has very rapidly risen to become the most popular politician in the country. To learn why, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. That's right. He's just been in office for just over a month, but uh, polls show that he's the most popular politician in the German government. Not bad for somebody who was pretty unknown uh, and I think even derisively called a, a member of the B team when <laughs> he first stepped up. Uh, one political scientist told Deutsche Welle he is demanding but not a show-off and often meets personally with the soldiers, which has earned him a reputation as someone who cares. But I think what makes him stand out the most to, to Germans is there is a, a decisiveness and a strength to him that we haven't seen from some of the more wishy-washy politicians. You know, he has been very strident in his calls for Germany to arm and to spend more on its military. And he has criticized even his own government and own leader for not doing more of that. He has said that this special fund of 100 billion euros that uh, was set aside at or just about this time last year for Germany to rapidly boost its armed forces, he said it's not enough. Uh, when there were discussions about sending German tanks to, to Ukraine, he said, well, we need more tanks for our own army. And people asked him, well, OK, if you're saying the German government should buy more tanks, where's the money going to come for this? Uh, he said, I don't care. You know, we just need to make it happen. Don't care where the money comes from. And people like that. Mm -hmm. And I think this it helps that he has a reputation for kind of having this no nonsense, get it done type of mentality back from his time in uh, federal politics at state level. But there's been there's been support for what he's saying. Now, he's been office, in office for a month. Mm -hmm. So people like the talk. There's not time to see if there's fruits to, to back that up, whether he's going to uh, have results to follow through with that. But I think we can already draw conclusions from the fact that that kind of talk is so popular and that you know, people are seeing him say that and thinking, yes, that mm -hmm. is exactly what I've been missing from a German leader. I like this guy. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'd have to say that probably one of the most consistent themes that we have emphasized over the years with respect to Germany, German politics, and even more broadly within Europe, but particularly in Germany, is just the public frustration with the weakness of the leadership. Uh, and it does seem like, you know, I think back to the announcement that Olaf Scholz made last year where he said, hey, we're going to devote all of this extra money to uh, German defense. And there, there was just universal praise for, for this. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm. It seems like uh, any politician who capitalizes on that hunger 
for greater German strength is going to uh, enjoy quite a bit of support from the public over this. The fact that this is happening uh, with the, the defense minister, it just shows this really is the direction that uh, that Germans want the nation to take. That's right. And I think it's I think it's you know, we talked last week about just this um, paralysis in German politics, this fracturing of German politics where it's splintering into kind of ever smaller groups. Mm. And it seems like one consequence of that that we've maybe not explored so much is that those who rise to the top in this environment rise to the top within this deal making. And they're people who can compromise with this individual and that individual and people with um, this background or this political party. And so you have not just one person, Olaf Schulz, but like an entire top tier of German politics that they're in that top tier because they can compromise and because they don't offend people. But they do not enthuse anybody Mm. and they don't get anybody passionate. And so it takes somebody from the B team, I think, to to be able to come along and, you know, maybe he won't go far in German politics because he can't compromise that way or um, do deals and go back on his principles. Uh, But it really shows that this is the that is what the German people want. But this is what German democracy, at least, has been unable to provide for the last 20 years or more. And and so there's. Yeah, there's there's this appetite. And then just like we talked about last year, it's hard to it's kind of hard to see how you get that appetite filled from um, this standard kind of wheeling and dealing. And so it does lay that that ground right wide open for exactly you know what you've said, what we've been looking for so many years that that we're going to have this strong man rise to the fore in Germany and kind of break through this paralysis and and deadlock. And so, yeah, you certainly see the potential for that. You saw the potential for that in the the cheers that greeted Schultz's announcement. You see the potential for that in the frustration that Schultz didn't do more and really follow through on that announcement. And then you just get a guy in power for a month who looks like he's going to follow through on what Schultz announced a year ago, and he becomes the most popular politician in Germany. Um, It it, it shows that appetite. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we have a uh, short article on thetrumpet.com about this Germany's defense minister rising in popularity. We'll link to that as well as our booklet, A Strong German Leader is Imminent, that explains why we're looking at this uh, through the lens of Bible prophecy, why we've been expecting this for so long. Thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. America liberated Iraq from the iron fist of Saddam Hussein. It's invested enormous sums of blood and treasure into this country. Well, an announcement from Iraq this week shows just how little loyalty Iraq feels to America. For this, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekic. Yes, on Wednesday, the Iraqi Central Bank made an announcement regarding trade with China. Now, most of the international system runs on the United States dollar, the world's reserve currency, even if two countries don't actually use the dollar for trade and other international agreements. But Iraq just announced that they're going to use uh, the uh, the yuan or China's currency in importing goods for, from China. So in other words, Iraq is China yuan, not the other way around, assuming they have them on hand. Now, Iraq is the second biggest producer in uh, the organization of petroleum exporting countries. Uh, so this may raise some eyebrows. Technically, oil is exempt from these deals that are going on. But 
at the same time, the day before that, Iraq also just granted two Chinese oil and gas companies permissions to work in certain fossil fuel fields in their country. So while oil may be off the table at this point, it and considering oil is by and large the only reason the Iraqi economy stays afloat in any sense of the world whatsoever, it's pretty conceivable to see this moving along this direction in the near future. We covered on this program before um, Saudi Arabia saying they want to start trading oil in currencies other than the dollar. And with all the billions and billions and billions of dollars America has invested in Iraq and liberating it from Saddam Hussein, from uh, the Islamic State, from building up infrastructure, from giving it trade exemptions to Iran, as we talked of, as as our Jerusalem correspondent talked about in last week's episode, this goes to show how much, um, not just uh, lack of trust, perhaps, in the American financial system, but mm -hmm. how much a, a excitement, you might even say, just to get away from that and to start embracing some of these other countries that are very much not in America's interest. Iraq and Saudi Arabia, both countries in the Middle East that the United States has invested a lot in, uh, that uh, with Saudi Arabia, a strong alliance that has gone back for quite some time for them to be turning against the United States this way is quite extraordinary. Uh, if this does happen, where you have uh, these oil exporting nations that are uh, trading in something other than the United States dollars, this could really contribute to a uh, a major economic crisis for the United States. Oh, very much so. And it's not even just those two countries. Egypt uh, is another country that um, said they would like to start doing more in, uh, international deals in the yuan as well. So this is this anti-American sentiment, this anti-dollar sentiment is starting to take place across the Middle East, including in countries that are supposed to be American allies, including countries that produce and export a lot of oil, the lifeblood of modern economies. Uh, a prophecy we go to often talking about America's economic woes is in Deuteronomy 28.52, which speaks of uh, America being besieged in all its gates. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has pointed to this being a trade siege, being shut out of the world economy. And we're seeing that, in, in at least starting in a small way, in events that are happening in places like Iraq and Saudi Arabia, and of all things, the uh, perhaps, again, in a small way, but it's revolving around oil and oil-producing countries. No modern economy, as much as people like to talk about green energy and, and renewable resources, no modern economy can function without oil at this point. So if we're seeing countries like Saudi Arabia and Iraq start to turn against the dollar for oil, of all things, we can expect America and its imports for energy – and it's just control over the international trade system as a whole in very di uh, dire jeopardy very soon. Well, we have an article called Uniting Against the Dollar that goes into more detail on these uh, trends economically in the world and that we're seeing here in Iraq and Saudi Arabia. We thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Zekic. The U.S. is plagued by deadly fentanyl addiction. It kills some 60,000 Americans every year. Some say this plague is being deliberately stoked by an enemy nation. To learn about this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, and it was at a huge drug bust in Minnesota this week where authorities uh, apprehended 45,000 pills of fentanyl. 
this is huge news and that each of those <laughs> each of those pills is 50 times as potent as the equivalent amount of heroin uh, and as you mentioned uh, there are about a hundred thousand drug overdose deaths in the United States each year, sixty thousand of which are caused by fentanyl. So this one chemical compound is responsible for almost two thirds of overdose deaths in the United States. Uh, so a big story, but unfortunately not uh, an uncommon story. I could <laughs> I could probably talk about a drug bust this big. Mm. every week uh, easily. The reason I brought this up this week as a, opposed to any other week when I could have talked about a similar fentanyl bust uh, is because Iowa Senator Joni Ernst uh, is accusing communist China of intentionally poisoning Americans. She said the Chinese are selling the precursor chemicals into Mexico when the Mexican cartels are working on making the fentanyl and distributing it up into the United States. I think the Chinese are intentionally poisoning Americans. Uh, and so attributing this not just to uh, Mexican drug cartel types who are out for profit at all costs, though they're involved as well, but actually have uh, these Mexican drug cartels, they're buying the precursor chemicals from Wuhan, China, which must be the worst, like worst place, mm. uh, and, uh, and using and trafficking it into America for the deliberate purpose of weakening America's social fabric. We actually at the Trumpet covered this uh, a few years ago, back in uh, October 2018. I had an article titled China's Drug War Against America that goes back into some of the history of the, uh, the communist revolution in China, where Mao Zedong would deliberately traffic heroin into non-communist parts of China uh, to weaken the province. Uh, until his communist forces could conquer it, and then he'd burn the poppy fields because he knew that the heroin would <laughs> would weaken his new regime as uh, quickly as it weakened his enemy's regime. So this is definitely something the Chinese have engaged in uh, for decades. Uh, and though they're denying it now, there's uh, there's some definitely some circumstantial evidence that they are uh, deliberately trafficking these precursors into Mexico for the purpose of killing 60,000 Americans every year uh, and tearing apart the, the families that those people leave behind. Well, we do have a, a short article on this. China is intentionally poisoning Americans with fentanyl. We'll link to that as well as Mr. Miller's article, China's Drug War Against America. Thank you very much, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Vernon Law. Experience is a hard teacher because she gives the test first, the lesson afterward. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Your world.